0: The Capital Weekly podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, uh, this is Tim Foster with the Capital Weekly podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Today we are going to do something a little bit different, or this episode I should say we're going to do something a little bit different than we usually do. Uh, Our standard practice is to have John Howard and I interview a California political newsmaker, but today we are going to broadcast a panel discussion from our recent California in Crisis COVID-19 online conference. This was a Zoom conference. We had participants from all over California who brought some very interesting viewpoints and a lot of informed discussion about exactly what is going on. The first panel of the day dealt with infrastructure and the impact that the pandemic has had on hospitals, on healthcare providers, on doctors, nurses, and other uh, healthcare professionals. And we were very lucky to have Carmilla Coyle of the California Hospital Association, Sarani Hire Kwan of the California Association for Nurse Practitioners, and Anthony Wright of Health Access California to talk about this issue. Uh, the panel was moderated by Jocelyn Weiner from CalMatters, longtime healthcare reporter. I also wanted to thank our sponsors for the event. We could not have done this without them. Uh, we had Kaiser Permanente the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, California Professional Firefighters, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, and Pandora. Uh, they made this event possible and made it possible for us to put this recording up for you today. So uh, we do have other panel discussions and a keynote from Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley. Those will also be available on the podcast, and we'll get back to our regular format next week. Hope you enjoy these, and uh, we think they're pretty informative. Thanks a lot.
1: Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me here today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of our panelists. I want to introduce them. Uh, Carmela Coyle is the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. Anthony Wright is the executive director of Health Access California. And Surani Hair Kwan is past president of the California Association of Nurse Practitioners. Um, Thanks to all of you and to our audience members for joining us today. I wanna start by saying to our panelists, this is intended to be a conversation. So please feel free to chime in on any question, even if it isn't directed at you. But um, when possible, try to keep your comments relatively brief since an hour can go by quickly and there's a lot of ground to cover. So first off, I'd like to give you each a few moments to make brief opening remarks and in doing so, Please consider the questions. What has been most surprising to you since the pandemic began? What has concerned you the most? And what has given you hope? Um, Do any of you want to start? Or should I pick someone? I'm happy to start.
2: Okay. OK. Normella, you were first. I heard you. Go ahead.
3: Thank thank you so much. Thank you, Jocelyn. And uh, thanks to Capital Weekly for finding ways to have us connected on important topics in in times like this. Surprising. Uh, I'd probably say it's the pan in pandemic. Um, uh, you know, we use that word, uh, we've used it, um, but to really see the impact of something that is worldwide and the incredible impact of, uh, I don't even call it an event, right? Because it's so long term, but the implications, uh, especially in healthcare when we are all um, drawing on the same small pool of resources, whether that's for staffing or personal protective equipment or testing supplies, and soon vaccines, Uh, surprise is how, just the enormity, the sheer enormity uh, of what we're dealing with. Uh, For me, concern, uh, I think, is that uh, what COVID-19 has demonstrated is I think California needs to take a fresh and more modern look at our disaster planning. Um, Typically our disaster planning in California has focused on a worst case scenario and that is an earthquake in a populous area. Uh, We are good, right? We're good at fires, mudslides, earthquakes. Uh, I think what we understand now is we need to think very differently about an infectious disease spread and one that is so widespread uh, and really take this opportunity to shore up Uh, our disaster efforts, Uh, we are an an enormous state, 58 counties, uh, largely where that public health uh, leadership lies. And I think one of the things that we've, um, that we understood is that we really need to pull together and have perhaps more uh, streamlined uh, planning and decision making as it relates to uh, an event uh, of this order of magnitude. Um, Hope, wow, uh, for me, um, and having the pleasure to represent hospitals Uh, is most certainly the women and the men uh, at the front lines of providing care throughout this pandemic. We said six months and one day. They have been doing an incredible, incredible job uh, risking themselves, uh, their families. They are exhausted. And um, uh, they, to me, uh, provide hope. We're all in this together. And they have just been exemplary of what um, heroic acts look like. So thank you, Jocelyn.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Surani, did you want to go next?
2: Yes, I'm happy to. I think uh, I'd like to level set. I am a nurse practitioner and I do practice and uh, Carmela's right. We're we're all exhausted. Um, I think I'll start first with the explanation that the state of California has about 18,000 nurse practitioners. And just by way of introduction of nurse practitioners, um, because unfortunately, a lot of times our patients just call us doctor and we have to correct them and tell them, no, in fact, We're nurse practitioners and uh, we're licensed healthcare providers who work as part of the healthcare team in the hospitals, in the offices, and uh, doing street care uh, for homeless patients. And we can manage all of our patients' healthcare needs. Uh, We um, like to play a very important role in the healthcare delivery system, providing care in all of these settings uh, because it's challenging and nurse practitioners really are drawn to the medically underserved communities throughout our state. We're particularly well-suited as nurse practitioners to help fill the provider gap during this pandemic and beyond, especially since 80% of us function in primary care, uh, particularly in the areas in need and in the fastest-growing regions of our state, like LA or Central Valley and Inland Empire. And consequently, these are actually places that have been hardest hit by COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic really created an unprecedented demand on the healthcare system. I mean, the crisis was, it was just like a book. Like I had opened one of my science fiction books and started reading. And it was made worse because we already have a shortage of primary care providers in California. But I am so proud of the nurse practitioners who kind of stood ready to help respond to this crazy contagious virus. The most surprising thing about COVID-19 for me was how quickly it spread and how fast the death rate climbed. I, I was just mesmerized, I think, like the rest of us in healthcare, care, by, by the shock of how serious this pandemic really was becoming. I was incredibly worried about my patients at my community clinic. I work at the Russian River Health Center in Guerneville, and we have a very large homeless population, as well as families and elderly and chronically sick. Many of them live paycheck to paycheck or on state assistance, and they just can't stop working. They have to continue to be those essential workers. So it puts them, their families, the community, everybody in our clinic at risk because of the transmission rate of COVID-19. I was very proud to see how rapidly healthcare pivoted to respond to the restrictions the pandemic caused. We converted in our community clinic almost our entire schedule to telehealth visits, Rolled out laptops to the entire healthcare team. That's all the providers, the nurses, the medical assistants, and front desk staff basically within a week and changed the paradigm of healthcare delivery by the end of March in our tiny little community. It gave me so much hope to see healthcare responsive to this massive change. We could see patients via computers and we could deliver and continue to deliver high quality, safe care. The incredible, incredible demand for healthcare services created by COVID-19 really gave nurse practitioners the opportunity to function at the top of our license by giving patients access when they needed it, where they needed it. We staffed walk-in clinics, uh, walk-up testing sites, call centers, and we did medical appointments with our patients on their phones and on their iPads. So we're very hopeful that this pandemic uh, is under control soon. But for as long as it lasts, nurse practitioners are gonna continue to work with all of our other healthcare colleagues on the front lines addressing our very diverse state population needs and take care of Californians where they need it. Thank you. Anthony?
4: Yes, um, so great to be on this panel um, with my colleagues here. Um, my name is Anthony Wright. I'm the executive director of Health Access California, the statewide healthcare consumer advocacy coalition. And it has, I mean, so much about this year and these last 200 days since um, the, the beginning of the shelter in place orders um, has been surprising. Um, I would say that, and, and I think we'll go through a lot of them um, in this conversation. I would say that. A lot of them stem from the fact that we have these basically three system: a public health infrastructure, um, a coverage and financing infrastructure, and a care delivery infrastructure. And they are um, misaligned, not integrated, fr- fragmented with each other in a way that has created some, you know, real gaps that uh, unfortunately patients fall through. Um, whether it is, um, you know, how, you know, what it t- it, t- it took to set up. And still is taking to set up testing and tracing and the you know that infrastructure what it, what has happened with regard to the sources of people's coverage and employer based coverage um, uh, and the ability of our various safety nets to, to 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 catch people who are falling off that coverage or it, or just um, when people go into and get the care that they need how how is it covered and how are they financially protected um, I would say the hope of all this has been, frankly, the Herculean efforts of both you know, public officials, public health officers. Um, you know, the, the the I will echo my colleagues in, in expressing just deep gratitude to the frontline workers, uh, the medical professionals, but but everybody who's been engaged in um, both in and outside the healthcare system uh, with regard to to this crisis and those Herculean efforts. And frankly. Surprising and remarkable resilience of some of our systems, almost in spite of the inadequacies and fragmentations of our systems. The fact that we have um, uh, that, you know, empl- you know that, uh, you know, credit to the employers who kept their empl- their workers on coverage even, you know, during a furlough. Credit to the the, the people who've been trying to, uh, to the the community clinic workers or the folks that shifted to telehealth to keep people uh, getting care that they need even outside of the COVID situation. But it does seem like, um, you know, we have a lot, I I agree with the sense that we need a a fresh look, not just disaster planning, but on just how our healthcare system is organized so that it actually is seen as a, not a a commodity, but as a system Um, and uh, to be able to respond to not just this, but to the next pandemic. Thank you,
1: thank you guys. I wanted to start by talking about some of the shortages that there have been. And, you know, at the outset of the pandemic, there were runs on everything from hand sanitizer to flour to yeast. And I mean, especially concerning has been um, the shortages of PPE and also of testing. Um, So I'm hoping that you guys would be able to weigh in on kind of what this shortage has meant um, of testing and also of, I've heard. You know, stories of providers facing rationing of N95 masks and difficulty getting testing themselves. So, I'm curious, you know, both from the consumer health consumer perspective and also from the provider perspective, what that's meant, and also where we are now. Like, are things any better? And I'll throw that open to any of you who want to take. Well,
2: I'm happy to start. Um, you know, the the rationing was frightening because. The way you're brought up in healthcare is you're taught that you use one set of protection per patient only and you don't spread it around, you don't reuse it. And uh, we were now being faced with the possibility that we could run out of um, things to protect us. And it was interesting at our clinic, uh, we, you know, of course, shifted to telemedicine immediately, but we also had to remain open to take care of patients. Uh, And so all of our clinics, we have a several clinics in the west part of Sonoma County, we shifted to essentially one provider on site at a time with their care team, which is their medical assistant and a front desk person and a nurse. So we spread around the um, site and we managed the uh, flow of the patients with the idea that we would minimize the use of our PPE as much as possible. So patients were tested outside the building first And then if they didn't have temperatures, because that's what we were doing at the time, they were brought in, they did hand hygiene themselves and put on masks if they didn't have a mask already. So escorted into their room, and then every single patient, we would don um, eye covering, a mask, and gloves. And so we decided at the um, organization that we would not use N95s unless it was... um, required for somebody who's coming in with respiratory problems. And those patients, we did try to keep out of the clinic because we really didn't understand how uh, coronavirus was spread, really. And uh, so as time has evolved, we have reusable eye covering, the kind of thick plastic that get uh, cleaned in between every patient. Um, We actually never ran out of gloves. Gloves have never been a problem for us in the clinic. And we've had uh, different types of N95s all the time. We, uh, Frankly, we, you get fit tested for only one type. But unfortunately, the way it is right now is uh, you take what you get and you remember how the fit testing um, worked for your N95 and you are hopeful that that will work for you um, if it's a different type. So we've been very fortunate to not run out of anything, but we've also been very cautious to not waste anything as well.
3: I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in uh, from a perspective, um, and maybe talk about three kinds of shortages. One, personal protective equipment, uh, another testing supplies, and critically important staffing shortages. And by the way, uh, we are by no means out of the woods. I think we are better as California's hospitals today than we were in March and April, uh, but the supply chain is by no means uh, repaired. On personal protective equipment, um, Uh, A couple of things, Uh, healthcare has moved to a sort of just-in-time inventory, depending on the supply chain, the manufacturers, whether that's N95s for hospitals, we experienced shortages, not just of those respirators, but of face shields, gloves, uh, isolation gowns, uh, nearly everything was in short supply. Uh, But healthcare over the last couple of decades has become a sort of just-in-time supply chain what many don't realize is much of this product was actually manufactured in China. And in fact, in Wuhan, China, where this um, where this virus began. And so what happened, because it is a pandemic, is we saw the entire world affected. And one of the challenges of COVID-19 is the sameness of the disease. That is, we were all uh, worldwide in need of the same stuff. Um, and- same care of patients who present with respiratory illness, infection. And that meant we needed uh, the same personal protective equipment, we needed the same respiratory therapists, we needed the same kinds of, of tests. And that put a strain on a healthcare system that otherwise is quite diverse in terms of what we do and the types of patients we care for. So while we've seen improvements in personal protective equipment and its availability, we still are seeing shortages. Uh, One of the challenges now as new manufacturers are getting involved in the production, for example, of N95 masks, it's important to understand, especially in healthcare, that it's not just the filtering function that you're looking at, it's the design and how that mask fits because in healthcare, it's got to be sealed Uh, It has to pass certain kinds of tests and we know that as uh, different manufacturers are coming into the market, uh, some of those manufacturers are failing the fit test and we just can't have that with the nurses and doctors uh, and and, 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 uh, nurse practitioners and others um, who are in need of a secure respirator, um, not just a respirator. So that's one I would just flag on the testing supplies There's been a lot of attention and immediate um, 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 scaling up of uh, the actual um, test-taking supplies, the swabs. We heard a lot about the swabs. The state has done a terrific job in bringing more swabs into the state. What you've heard less about are the supplies needed to actually run the tests. Um, And the laboratory supplies that are needed, they are in short supply. They continue to be in short supply. Uh, We have a challenge, not just in California, but nationwide. Uh, We are concerned, we have hospitals who do not have the lab supplies needed to be able to quickly test a patient when they present. So we continue to have challenges and as we all know, if you don't know if a patient is COVID positive, that means you've got to use more PPE, right? Because you have to treat that patient as if they're COVID positive. So if we don't have our supplies, it puts a strain on our personal protective equipment supplies. And, and last, very quickly, is just staffing in general. Again, because of the sameness of this disease, uh, it is not any... Um, healthcare personnel that's needed. It is that specialty personnel. It's ICU nurses, right? Critical care nurses, respiratory therapists, and the physicians who specialize in these respiratory diseases. They have been and continue to be in short supply. And so even as folks said, well, can't we go to another state uh, to pull folks in? Of course, they were needed there as well. So really learning to wrestle with a pandemic uh, and its implication for inventory is a challenge. And
4: I mean, I think the shortages, the, the problems were significant. I think I would be remiss if we just didn't flag that a lot of this is a federal failure, a, 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 a failure of planning. It, it makes no sense for for individual health systems or even states to sort of try to compete with one another across the country for PPE or for other things. There, this needs to be a thought of as a system where we can then... Um, Devote resources as appropriate where the hot spots are at the moment, and shift and and move move systems as a moment. Recognizing, as Carmelo said, that this is widespread, and and the notion that um, and so it was it, it was good that we had some leadership at the state level to try to address some of these using the the uh, California's significant um, purchasing power as a big state, but um, but even that. Has its limits if it's not part of a national strategy, and I think we're seeing that in the comparisons with other countries right now. And so I, I just really want to flag that. And again, I just also want to just flag that I think it does raise the issue that, of course, there's going to be issues. You know, when anything, something like new happens, that we there's going to be some ramp up time to, to get going on. You know, on some of these on some of these issues, but. You know, the fact that we've had basically a, a system that has, we've let market forces deter, um, craft s- certain um, priorities and how healthcare uh, resources are spent. And this allows for that, if, you know, in a, in a normal market, that just-in-time philosophy that Carmel was talking about is a, is a very economically efficient thing. But I do, I do think that there is a appropriateness. Or healthcare system to have the desire, de- the desire to be efficient, but also to have some public health aims as well, like having supplies of personal pr- protective equipment and other things at the ready, uh, you know, ventilators, etc. And you know, some of that is it, again, you know, do we want a, a system that is entirely left to market forces and then vulnerable when that market changes, or do we want to have some public health overall public health planning and direction as well.
3: And I wonder if I may add to Anthony's comments, he said a really important word, and that was the word competition. I don't know if people realize uh, some of the ugliness that was going on behind (laughs) the scenes. As supplies were short, an example, an N95 mask that should cost normally just under a dollar. Uh, people trying to hawk them, quite frankly, for eight and nine dollars a mask. Um, yet the desperation, right, and a desire to protect nurses and doctors, um, it, it did become quite ugly. I think Anthony has put his finger on one of the most important policy questions that I think we will be coming to um, uh, when this eases a bit and, and we can start thinking about it. And that is, um, do we, as a state, as a nation, as a, as a globe, uh, should we, could we, invest in additional capacity? And by capacity, I mean not just space, uh, but stuff um, that has a cost. Right? It will add to the cost of the healthcare system. Uh, but certainly, what we learned is uh, just in time doesn't work in a pandemic, and market competition um, is a challenge in a pandemic. So that
1: that makes me wonder about the vaccine um, distribution and kind of, do any of you have thoughts about like what all our experience thus far is likely to mean about how efficiently we actually distribute a vaccine?
3: I'll jump and it is going to be controversial and I think quite challenging. during uh, the um, the height of this, uh, the state and if I could just for a minute um, thank not only Secretary Galley but everyone within the state who's just been at the front lines. Talk about exhausted! They have done a terrific job um, and, and have been just excellent uh, partners in uh, what have been very challenging times. Uh, but they actually had to take a look at what crisis care guidelines looked like. Uh, we have to plan for not having what we need available. Similarly with this, and, and that was controversial, uh, but it really needed to be to be done. We needed to have an explicit conversation. I think we're gonna see the same challenges with a vaccine where uh, there, there will be a vaccine or multiple vaccines developed, but they will not be available at scale initially. So we'll have to figure out the system by which we allocate uh, what will be an insufficient quantity among a number of essential workers, whether those are healthcare workers or other workers, um, and and that will be controversial. Uh, We will have no choice. We're gonna have to go through that difficult uh, discussion. And then the actual scaling up will be challenging. Many of these vaccines may require storage um, at very, very cold temperatures, which means it might not be at your local pharmacy uh, or at your local health clinic. Uh, California is one of four states in the United States that's gonna be piloting this, so we will be on the leading edge. We've got a great um, team of folks in the state testing task force. Uh, I've had the pleasure to participate in that. We have some challenging conversations um, and and ethical and, and principled conversations to have. Yeah, I
4: mean, I would, I would add to that I do think that you know there is just the issue of triage as you are scaling up, but I mean I think that there's a set of a, a set of challenges both in terms of the public's trust of the vaccine, which I think um, you know uh, in a world where we're still uh, there's still some lack of trust of even existing long standing well proven vaccines and and you know unfortunately to the extent that there's um, been an aura of of politics around some of the development of the vaccine. I think that that, that, that doesn't help anybody. Um, I would say the, uh, I am concerned about just capacity and, and scaling up, you know, if, if we're not there yet in testing, we need to be, frankly, you know, we, we should be an order of magnitude or, or, or several yeah. magnitudes higher than what we are in testing right now. And if we're not then vaccine, you know, what will it take to do vaccines? And then I also just, you know, would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, just the money piece of this, which is um, both what the drug companies charge for that. Um, I, you know, I and my organization has done a lot of work on prescription drug pricing and we, um, you know, fear that this is one of many opportunities where, you know, the healthcare system can, you know, at a time of stress, uh, you know, there's parts of the healthcare system that can try to make money off of, uh, undue profits off of this. Um, which you know we we don't want any pandemic profiteering, and at the same time um, w- there's a cost to the system. And then you know do we want to are we going to make sure that this is equitable and make sure that there's no fi- financial barriers for the individual regardless of their coverage status, etc. And you yeah. know, and that's why it still continues to be imperative that we make sure that people are in systems of care in coverage, um, and that's ongoing work as well.
2: And I just want to comment just um, in general, uh, Anthony's right about the uh, potential lack of interest in getting vaccines. We still see that in primary care, and it's very concerning. Uh, Regardless of how much literature and evidence you trot out, um, there are uh, certain segments of the population that have no interest in getting vaccines. So the question is, how effective is the vaccine going to be, number one? Number two, Uh, What about the population that chooses not to get vaccinated? Because we still have a large number of people in California who choose not to get the flu vaccine. And that's fairly um, good vaccine every single year. So I think those are two very concerning things for us in primary care. And for the patients who choose not to get vaccinated, what are we gonna do to protect ourselves and our community from those patients?
3: And and I can't, if I may, Jocelyn, um, uh, this notion of the flu vaccine is so important. The most important thing everybody, every one of us can do is to get your flu shot this year Um, for the providers on the front lines uh, to be able to separate a flu patient from a COVID-19 patient is going to be so critically important. Uh, We're at about a 50% um, vaccination rate for the flu in the state of California. We have to do much better. Uh, We're launching a campaign next week. Uh, partnering with the state, uh, but it's the one thing everybody watching this today can do uh, to do their part. Right. Um,
1: So I wanted to turn to a question about hospitals, and I know hospitals have had to prepare for this flood of patients early on that didn't come and then then later we're facing bed shortages in some areas and I'm wondering if you can talk about like what this six months has meant for the state's hospital, what kind of shape they're in, and um, are there sort of plans to mitigate going forward? Do you take that,
3: Camilla? Um, the six months have been extraordinary, um, and remember, um, hospitals are really about the people in them, uh, not just the patients we care for. Uh, But the the workers, the caregivers, um, hospitals are about people taking care of people. It's been extraordinary. Uh, It has pushed everybody to the edge. Um, Hospitals as always stand uh, ready in an emergency. Um, This one was particularly difficult as we saw it beginning to come to the United States and remember, California was at that leading edge because we did the repatriation of the Japanese cruise ships and then the cruise ships in Oakland. Um, so uh, we were really hit hard um, uh, before we actually had community spread in California. Um, and so what we did in preparation, again, in coordination with the state, is we preemptively uh, shut down non-COVID-19 services to make way for what we anticipated would be a torrent of COVID-19 patients. Um, It was the right thing to do at the moment. It was uh, what we thought was um, the most important, and that was to prepare for something we had never seen before. What we know now is that we cannot surge that way again for two important reasons. One, uh, by attempting to make way uh, for COVID-19 patients, there were patients with other conditions who went without the care that they needed. Um, and that's critically important. We've got to be able to provide equitable care to everyone, COVID-19 and non-COVID-19. Uh, but of course, uh, with the infection and how little uh, was known in California, uh, it, it's, it's how that worked. And second, uh, because of the tremendous financial uh, hit uh, that was taken certainly by hospitals, but the entire healthcare system, right? Physicians, dentists, uh, others. For hospitals, uh, we estimate, that this initial short-term loss is in the $20 billion range. Um, But that's just the loss associated with uh, revenue that wasn't coming in uh, because patients have been avoiding the hospital. It does not include the investments that were made in PPE and others. And unfortunately, hospitals, like other parts of the economy, will suffer for a longer period of time. Uh, The economic decline and challenges that we're seeing affect hospital organizations as well. So while there's an immediate hit, I think what many may not realize is the long-term damage that has done financially to hospital organizations, making it uh, difficult for hospitals uh, over the next five-year period to borrow money, difficult to make capital improvements. Um, It has really been challenging. What has happened in the short term is we saw some federal relief, but that federal relief way uh, under proportion in terms of the number of hospitals and patients in the state of California, uh, just under $5 billion uh, compared to that $20 billion hole. Uh, so it's helped in the short term, but we expect this will be a long-term uh, financial challenge for California's hospitals.
4: Um, I, would, I would just say that the, uh, that it is it, one of those surprising things about a pandemic. We would it, it, um, it wouldn't necessarily have been intuitive that one of the issues would have been people not going to the doctor, not going to the hospital, and then creating um, you know revenue shortfalls for them. It does sort of speak again to this question of how we even finance our health system. You know we don't you know we don't pay for our firefighters per fire. We don't pay uh, you know. Um, Librarians per book checked out. Yet that's somehow how we do it for um, for hospitals and our and our you know critical healthcare system. And maybe that should we should look at rather than paying you know per procedure or pay patient you know paying based on uh, other uh, other factors including you know quality and outcomes and 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 you know global budgets based on these broader public health parameters instead of um, these other things, I think that, that that suggested, and I think that that could also potentially um, deal with some of the other issues that people have been struggling with, with, with regard to just the high cost of healthcare. But I do, but I, you know, I, I, I agree that this has sort of just sort of exposed um, some real issues with just how we, how we sp- fundamentally structure and finance our healthcare system.
3: And I think just to add to Anthony's comments, um, is there a piece of this that we need to think about in a public utility kind of model? You mentioned fire and and police. Uh, What really happened, right, is people were paying their insurance premiums. That didn't stop. That money was flowing to insurance companies but it was not flowing from there to providers because they weren't providing services and we are paid uh, per service per admission. Um, I I think that is uh, a challenge and one of the big policy questions we'll have to deal with. Uh, The other challenge different than other um, sectors of the economy um, where many shut down um, and uh, they didn't have to pay the costs associated with business um, Hospitals, of course, did not shut down. So not only did we not have the revenue, but our expenses were actually higher. Uh, so it really um, has has put financial um, on California. Sorry, my
1: screen is frozen for a minute. Um,
3: But we can hear you, Jocelyn, if that helps. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm just, you're off roads and I just want to make sure you're not still talking. Um, Well, so another uh, question I had related to insurance coverage is that I understand that counties have been expecting a flood of Medi-Cal applications and that hasn't materialized so far. And I'm curious if any of you have a sense of what? Why not? And what the expectations might be with risk going forward?
4: This is something that we've been, you know, puzzled. Another uh, in your surprising questions. It's something that we've been puzzled uh, by, um, and frankly alarmed by, because we know that you know we have you know several million people who filed unemployment claims, um, and many of those people not just lost income and um, and jobs, but also health coverage associated with that. And, you know, some of the early estimates were, were significant, and who would fall into covered California and Medi-Cal appropriately. Um, I think some of this is, um, uh, I I think some of this is that some employers did keep people on, on coverage, even as they were furloughed. I do fear that that will, um, uh, that that will end as people realize that this is going a lot longer than I think people originally thought. You know, you know, I think some of those furloughs are turning into terminations, unfortunately, um, as as this seeps in. Um, I would also, uh, and and I also think that there's nationwide some efforts about just how do we do more in terms of outreach. This is frankly the first real test of the new safety net under the Affordable Care Act in the 10 years that we passed the Affordable Care Act, we, um, uh, you know, it's all been economic growth until this point. And so this is the first, we built a safety net and now this is the first time that it's really gonna be tested in a, in, in a more severe way. And, you know, I think that we'll, we'll be in a better place because of the Affordable Care Act, because of the Medicaid expansion, because of the assistance in Covered California, including the new assistance that the state has included. But I think that, that there still will be some significant gaps. I do still worry, however, that California um, has some particular challenges. Um, other states have been going up 7%, 10% in Medi-Cal enrollment. Um, you know, Kentucky, up to 20%. We're at like 1% or 2%. So you know, there is something specific. Some of that might be related to public charge and, and the, 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 administ- the federal administration's attack on not just um, undocumented, but legal immigrants. Um, but uh, you know, I think that there's a lot more we can do and should do with regard to outreach to educate people about the options they have now. This is not their, the, the Medi-Cal program of all. Uh, um, a person who was middle class working who now finds themselves without income now has Medi-Cal as a safety net and they effort to get free care in this period of time. And um, I think we need to sort of shout that from the rooftops.
2: Well, I, as a provider, I want to just comment on the the eerie feeling that I have with my patients that are sharing their job losses with me, and I I can just see into a, the a little bit of the future where they are they're going to need insurance. They're losing their insurance. They're losing all of their benefits with their past employer. Um, so that's starting to happen out in the clinic. But the other half of this is that people are still frightened to go back to work. So I've had uh, a number of conversations with some of my patients about their fear of actually returning to work. And they have health conditions that may put them at higher risk of actually picking up COVID, regardless of how often they wash their hands and wear their mask and keep socially distanced. So I think those, those two things are something that I'm seeing right now in the clinic.
3: And, and my thought is, uh, combining both of those, I, I think we are going to see an impact we haven't yet. Um, uh, and I think some of the short-term economic relief is helpful, uh, but to pick up on Anthony's point, uh, this is going to be a long haul. Um, and and I, I, I hate to be the doom and gloom, uh, but I really think we are looking at addressing COVID-19 well into 2022. And I think it's going to be harder and harder for other sectors of the economy to hold on. And I, I do think we're gonna see job loss. I think we're gonna see increase in Medi-Cal roles. Now is the time for us to to really have that conversation. Thank goodness for the Affordable Care Act. Um, but Anthony, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, this is gonna, it's gonna be tested and the safety net aspect will be tested to its limit. Um,
1: well, I'd, I'd love to hear you guys weigh in on the state's reopening if, um... If you're willing, sort of what what happened the first time around from your perspective, and are we going to do better this time? Um, and I'm also curious as a parent juggling kids and work, like how you see the schools um, fitting into this reopening picture.
2: Well. I'm not sure about um, about what reopening is gonna look like. I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm just doing healthcare out in a very rural part of California. And I see a desire for people to wanna to whatever, get back to whatever normal is gonna be, but people are very afraid. And for the most part, I ha- I have to say, I'm very proud of our patients and how dedicated they are to keeping their masks on and their hands washed uh, just um, amazing because that's really caring about their community as opposed to themselves right that's about making sure they're not transmitting the virus and i think that the more californians that understand that and carry that into the coming year the better off we'll be um, we are in healthcare. care uh, basically waiting for the second wave. Uh, we're waiting for fall to um, come crashing down on us. So I think I'm not, um, I'm not excited about uh, reopening because I think it's gonna happen again. And I think we just need to be very cautious. And I appreciate um, what the state government has been doing and uh, the county governments uh, also being uh, very cognizant of their rates of infection and their deaths. And I, I, that, I just appreciate it. And because I think it's gonna help all of us.
3: And, and my thoughts, um, I think the new revised uh, four color stages um, is an important improvement. Um, I think it is simpler. Uh, the, the original version was pretty complex. I think at its core, look, this is gonna be really political, right? Um, everyone wants to be able to get back to work. Um, uh, there is no normal, we're gonna have to define a new normal. Um, my own thoughts is I think we really have to err on the side of the science. Uh, And that is uh, when we saw beginning at reopening, the virus did exactly what we would expect the virus to do. And as we begin to mix and mingle, it spread and it spread very, very quickly. Um, Many of us in healthcare are still holding our breaths for the next week. Uh, In the next week, we will see the impact of Labor Day Um, and and what happened there. I think that's going to be a real tell as to what we can anticipate, but I think a staged slow uh, reopening. Uh, I have a 17 year old uh, pretending to do his senior year in high school. And you've all seen those Twitter, you know, videos of the little kids kicking and pounding their feet on the floor and 17 year olds do that too. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard for all of us. Um, At the same time, uh, I have a husband who's high risk. And so for us, there's nothing more important. Uh, There's no take back, right? Um, uh, So I I really think we have to be patient as a state, patient as a nation, um, make certain that we're doing everything we can to stop the spread until we've got our arms around this, um, some vaccine, uh, some way to prevent. And my son will hate me for telling that story. (laughs) Thank you. Um, and there
1: are widespread reports of a deterioration of our collective mental health with significant increases in depression, anxiety, and suicidality. I'm curious if you all are seeing evidence of this already and if you feel like we're gearing up an adequate response.
2: So I, I want to comment on that right away. Uh, we have a to telehealth. And actually, Jocelyn, I'd say you're probably the expert in this, having done so much research on it recently. But the ability to deliver mental health services via telemedicine has been a game changer. Game changer. I have, um, even before COVID, had patients that I wanted to see in, um, you know, have see a therapist in our community clinic. And we're very fortunate in the community clinics where, uh, because we have more access to behavioral health. But I could never talk my patients into doing it. It was, you know, another drive to the clinic, uh, different um, time taking off of work. People just didn't have the time or the inclination to do it. But now with telehealth, it's completely different. Um, Every patient that I've ever wanted to have make sure that they plug in with uh, behavioral health is plugged in because of telemedicine. So I am forever grateful for this shift in the paradigm because I think we have to make mental health services available to patients and we cannot keep it in a box um, in a place you have to drive to and sit in a room with a the therapist.
3: And, and there's actually, uh, yes, we have seen it, uh, the emergency departments are reporting much higher levels of uh, behavioral health patients. Uh, there's a bill right now on the governor's desk that will allow us to use telehealth, as Sarani was just describing, uh, for individuals who are on involuntary holds. Uh, normally, we'd have to wait for the county health department to drive to the hospital to evaluate the patient. If We can do that via telehealth. We can make certain we get individuals in need, the right care in the right setting. Uh, we are very concerned. And, and I think um, this is a third a critical policy issue we'll be talking about. Um, we are seeing things right now in the hospital emergency department but I bet if all of us look around among our family and our group of friends, uh, we, we are all suffering uh, from the behavioral health challenges of trying to manage life in a, in a challenging and isolated world like COVID. Uh, there is, I, I think, a um, tsunami of behavioral health issues we will be dealing with long after a vaccine is available and herd immunity is achieved. And now's the time for us to really come together and, um, and, and get very creative about solving these problems. Uh, California can do great things together uh, when we come together, but I think we're gonna have to set aside some of um, uh, some of the rules that have not allowed us to create an integrated behavioral health system before, um, to some of Anthony's uh, comments earlier about the broader system, but we need this now.
4: Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I would also just be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, when we're talking about mental health, these, these issues are felt across, the, across our society, but they're also deeply felt in certain communities. And so I know the next panel will be about health equity, but you know the, how how much all of what, what we've been talking about um, takes you know culturally competent um, uh, outreach and and caregiving, whether it's around mental health, whether it's around you know the work to test and trace, whether it's uh, um, whether it's the work about having a vaccine put out there and accepted. Um, you know the, uh, this will this will require significant efforts to be. Um, culturally competent and equitable in our highly diverse state in California. Um, and since Carmela mentioned a bill on the governor's desk, I also wanted to mention that a key thing on mental health, um, another bill on the governor's desk, SB 855, would ensure mental health a- adequacy, uh, mental health equity with regard to health and uh, uh, private health coverage. Really important bill um, to expand access to, to make sure people have people have access to mental health at a time that it's sorely needed.
1: Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask two quick questions from the audience. Um, The first is, are are there enrollment periods for Medi-Cal Covered California that make people think they can't apply? Anthony, do you mind taking that?
4: Yeah, um, you know, just very quickly, you know, news you can use, um, Medi-Cal is open, uh, um, open year round. And so um, if, you, if, you've lo- if you or somebody you love or somebody you know has lost income, has lost a job, uh, they, they very well may be eligible for free coverage in Medi-Cal, you know, as they uh, get, get back on their feet in this moment. Um, if they've lost some income, but maybe not all their income, um, they're eligible for Covered California. Covered California has special enrollment periods available, but so normally they have an open enrollment period, in the, um, in the fall, which we're about to enter into anyway, but frankly, um, there are these special enrollment periods, uh, you know, due to the wildfires, due to, due to COVID, et cetera, that basically people can on at, right now. I mean, even if we weren't in an emergency, if you had lost your, if you had a change in employment or change of income, that would get a triggering event to be able to get onto, to, to apply for Covered California, where you can get subsidies so you don't have to pay more than the percentage of your income. So both really important safety net programs at this moment. Okay. Um,
1: and then the other question was, is it true that the effectiveness of the flu shot is only 40 to 60%? Will a vaccine for COVID-19 have the same effectiveness rate? And is that a good rate? Does, does anyone want to take that or know an answer?
2: Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, the, the effective rate of the flu vaccine varies every single year because the flu virus is constantly changing. So the answer to that is get your flu shot because you're better off with a flu shot than not a flu shot. And tens of thousands of people die every single year from the flu, and that's a preventable disease.
3: And the conversation about a COVID-19 vaccine is similar. Uh, That is, we are still learning about this virus. There's a lot that we don't know. There's some speculation that it too will change. I don't know if that means it's COVID-19 and then COVID-21 and COVID-22, but I think those are some of the challenges that the manufacturers are, are wrestling with right now.
1: I have a hundred more questions, but I think our hour is coming to a close. So thank you all so much for um, your thoughtful answers and hopefully be able to talk again sometime soon. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.